We've discovered over the last few weeks that the work of God throughout the Old Testament is not just several stories sort of somehow loosely connected, but it really is all one story, all pointing towards Christ. And I think about this illustration of the kite and how the law of love as Christians, it it tethers us to God. And this morning as we dive into the book of Judges, you'll discover that this idea that God ties himself to us is not a a new idea or a unique idea, but rather we see it revealed in the Old Testament. As God binds himself, he ties himself to Israel. And that string, that tether, keeps Israel from crashing and burning. Yet Israel, like us, we want to cut the string. We feel like we're being restricted somehow by God's love, by God's holiness and what he asks of us. That we could probably fly better if we just cut the string and he let us loose. But it's the string, the line that's taught, that tethers us to him, that allows us to fly. I mean, it's the kite itself that does very little. It's everything else that allows the kite to fly. And it's that taut string that tethers it to the controller that allows it to be its full potential, to take advantage of the aerodynamic principles, as the narrator said. But oftentimes we want to cut the tie and go it alone. God, I got this. I can handle this. If you just let me do my thing, I'll be all right. But how many of you know it's those little nudges on the kite that keep it from going down, crashing. It's the the little pull this way, the little nudge that way that directs it back up and keeps it airborne. I mean, you know that feeling when you aren't paying attention and just for a second you look to the side and you you didn't give it the nudge and it comes crashing down, right? It's the Holy Spirit of God that nudges us, convicts us, it It's that little pull on the string that allows us to stay airborne. It allows us to stay in relationship with God. And this is where we find ourselves in Judges. In fact, we're going to start at the end and flip back to the beginning. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It's a simple statement. It really should be at the beginning of the story. Instead, it's at the end. And it's a simple verse that simply says this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did what they wanted. They did whatever they felt like doing. And this is the story we find Israel in, in the book of Judges. That they did what they wanted. And this is how the story goes. They wanted a king. They needed a leader. And they had the law. But without a personality without any sort of relationship, no accountability, they went about it on their own. There was no personal responsibility. And without personal responsibility, oh, I should say it this way, personal responsibility recedes without a relationship with God. Everybody just did as they saw fit. And you see in Judges... Twelve judges, twelve personalities that are raised up. 
And they would follow that personality when it met their need. It brought some sort of relief. But in this, we see it throughout the Pentateuch into Joshua, now into Judges. God is saying to the people, I am your king. Follow me. I will provide. I will do everything you need. I will be your king. But Israel would not have God as king. They would go it alone. And so the account of Judges is this cycle of going it alone, of them breaking covenant with God and going their own way. And when we do that, when we break covenant with God, when we decide to go our own way, we begin to compromise what we've said are our beliefs or our values. We see in this book, a book of evil and lawlessness and calamity, for that is what fills the pages of the book of Judges. Violent invasions, apostate religion, unchecked lawlessness, and tribal civil warfare. At the beginning, you have military failure. You have the judges who come in to judge the people and lead them. But by the end, you have complete and utter moral failure. And I think we need to consider the whole story. The whole story of what God is trying to do with his people. And this is important, as we've discovered throughout this series, the story, and as we will continue to study all the way into Easter, is that God has a purpose throughout the whole book of the Bible, and his purpose is to redeem for himself a people that would be his very own. He will not share. He will not have any other God before him. And what this book shows me or reveals to me is my tendency to rely upon myself, to seek my own pleasure, my own path of least resistance. As we dive into the book of Judges, we're going to start in chapter 2 today and let that govern our discussion this morning of the book of Judges. While we won't focus on the many stories, I want to focus on this first part. Judges chapter 2, we'll start in verse 6 and Bear with me as I read a portion of it, because it really gives you and encapsulates the whole story of the book of Judges. Chapter 2, starting in verse 6, it'll be on the screen, or if you have you version, the notes are on there as well. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaish. Verse 10, after the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up, who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them. 
they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Isn't that how it is for all of us? Do you see the cycle in your own life? Let's explore that a little bit this morning. You see, in the the cycle of the judges, take this home as your homework, read through the book of Judges. Uh, The book of Joshua kind of sets it up that they are to go into the land and destroy the people of the land because the people were so evil, so corrupt, that God did not want them to corrupt the Israelites. And the Israelites disobeyed. Then they were defeated. And then there was deliverance. And then there was forgetfulness. And you'll see this cycle seven times throughout 12 Judges. They would choose the short-term pleasures versus the long-term obedience of the promises of the covenant. And you'll see, even at the beginning, chapters 1 and then into 2 and 3, you'll see some partial obedience. You'll see even some success. Take, for instance, Judah. The tribe that's called to go first into the land, the Lord says, you go first into the land, I will be with you, you will have victory. Judah says, okay. It's interesting that the name of Judah, it means praise. So praise is going first, right, into the land. And the Lord says, you're going to start this victory. But Judah turns to the tribe of Simeon and says, why don't you help us out? Sounds like a good idea. Why not? Everybody could use a little help from their friends, right? Right? Buzz and Woody, I mean, the whole Toy Story thing. But the command to Judah was that they go in and take the land that was assigned to them, and the Lord would be their help. And yet Judah turned. It was partial obedience. They didn't trust God fully. They had an unbelieving belief. And they didn't destroy the people completely. They failed to drive out the people. Multiple tribes would go into the land that was assigned and promised to them only to say, I'm too tired. We've been at this a long time. We'll figure it out another time. They delayed their obedience. Can I tell you, church, that partial obedience and delayed obedience is still disobedience. Partial obedience or delayed obedience is still disobedience. And in their strength, it says, as you read through the book, that they at first enslaved the people because they were strong. They enslaved them. But how many of you know in your own life the thing you think you mastered in your strength in your weakness becomes your master. You can point at addictions and habits and things of that nature that 
you know at one point you totally controlled it. Lord, I, I got this. I can quit anytime. But those of you who are addicted to Candy Crush, you know what I'm talking about. But it's true. That which we think we have enslaved suddenly will become our master. And they compromised. Even in their marriages, they begin to invite the culture into their life. They serve the bales of sensuality, of fertility, of success and riches. Simply said, sex, power, and money. Not a lot has changed. True? Their idols become their masters. We talked last week about idols, that even good things that become ultimate things become idols. And those idols then turn into strongholds and they become our master. Anything, I'll say it this way, our whole heart becomes set on things other than God and they become the idols in our life. Well, Pastor Jeremy, I don't have any idols. Well, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the person next to you. Look at the person next to you and say, you have idols. Right? I mean, we don't have, you know, the little statues, you know, that you, you have incense and you sacrifice cats to at your house. I mean, we don't have idols. But what if I was to ask you some questions? Like, in your downtime, what do you daydream about? What do you think about? What are you planning and trying to maneuver for? What is that thing that causes you to have uncontrolled emotions over? Pain, anger, frustration? How about this? How do you respond when God doesn't answer the prayers you wanted answered, the way you wanted them answered? you go about it in your own strength? What do you spend your money on? These are questions that, for me, begin to reveal things in my heart that I'm not quite sure I'm ready to answer. But I'm convinced of this. Jesus doesn't want followers who have divided affections or split allegiances. Jesus comes in and he points at what we see as valuable and things that we're most concerned about. And he says, what about that? Oh, Jesus, that ain't no thing. It's just a little thing. Don't worry about it, Jesus. Come on. Jeremy, what about that? That thing, that little thing. Oh, you know, it's it's no big deal. It's just a little thing. Jesus will not share you. When you look at the book of Judges and you see this warfare, it's easy to see holy war. But when we translate it through the New Testament, we need to go back to the reason that God was calling them to this, and it was holiness. God was calling the people to holiness, not holy war. And I know as Christians, sometimes we see our values and our set of beliefs, and we say, well, I'm going to fight for that And that's good and right, but even those things can cause us to go astray because we put that as the idol. And instead of living in holiness, we live in holy war against people and culture. 
I can think of the fact that we value human life from conception. It's biblical. It's a value. Before it ever became politics, it was in Scripture. And taken to the extreme and that put up as an idol, I can see why it would cause someone to bust into an abortion clinic and start shooting doctors. What's holy about that? If you value life, you value all life. We're we're called to holiness, not holy war. And yet, in your life, we we sing these songs, and and we'll sing one to close. The words are, in Christ alone I place my trust. And the question to me is, is Christ alone in your life? Is Christ the only one? One author put it this way, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. He will not share you, but we want something else. That's our human nature. Even the story of the prodigal son that we explored last week. The son goes to the father and says, Father, give me what is mine. Children, realize what your parents have is not yours. You didn't earn it. You should be paying rent. But the, fa- the son goes to the father and says, Daddy, give me what my inheritance will be. And the father says, okay. There's judgment in this. He says, son, you really want it that bad? I'm going to let you go your way. You want to sever the string that ties your kite to me? Go ahead. See what happens. Parents, you know what this is like when your, your child is trying at a young age to put their own pants on. And you're trying to help them and they say, no, daddy, I got this. After fighting, you say, okay, your will be done. And they begin to struggle, putting two legs into one leg hole. And they're pulling and the zippers on the backside and, and they tip over and not being able to catch themselves, they crash. And you stand there and you go, <laughs> told you. <laughs> okay, maybe you don't do that. But part of you, you know as a parent, you're thinking that. If you would have just listened to me. And that's what God the Father is like. And in the story of the prodigal son, I'm sure the father's heart is breaking as he's saying, son, if you want, go for it. But then the son suffers because he's walked out of the protection and blessing of his father. He wanted to fly on his own only to discover he could not. Why? Because God will not share us. His purpose throughout time is to redeem for himself a people that would be his very own. And after disobedience, which in its truest sense is rebellion comes defeat because God would not bless the people in disobedience. How evil would God be if he blessed you in your rebellion that you would only go farther and farther from him? But if they wanted to go their own way, God would permit it. He would not bless them. But they would be controlled by the very things they thought they could control. 
This is what friendship with sin leads to, is slavery. You've experienced that in your life. I've experienced that in my life. And what we have then is what we call a stronghold. This is what my grandparents used to call it. And even even the philosophy and doctrine of strongholds can become in itself an idol. But in its truest sense, David Wilkerson, a great preacher, said it this way, a stronghold is an accusation firmly planted in your mind by Satan of falsehoods about who God is and who you are. An accusation firmly planted in your mind by Satan about falsehoods, about who God is, and about who you are. And so a stronghold in our life is simply anything that sets itself up and against Christ. It's opposed to truth. And then it's the mindset of unbelief that is exalted above God. And in our own lives, we structure our beliefs around our strongholds. We create for ourselves belief systems around our strongholds. It is this, this mindset that we create. It's really based on our willingness to execute the sin we want to participate in. And so we structure our lives around it. And it's not necessarily... You look, when you look at the outside of a person and you think you can identify their stronghold, or even in your life, alcoholism, drugs, whatever it is, this is simply a, an outward manifestation of a stronghold that's hidden deep inside of the human heart. It's not that alcohol is the stronghold. I, that could be an addiction. But the stronghold is that something other than Christ has taken rule of my life. This thought that I can escape my problems or that it enables me to be somebody I am otherwise not. There's these strongholds built in to the sin that we willingly participate in. And at some point you find yourself the unwilling participant of a sin that has now enslaved you. And so we structure for ourselves an unbelieving belief system. We basically say, well, I believe God is and can, but not in me and not with me. And he surely can't accept me. And we begin to structure our belief system around that stronghold because either God has disappointed us or we feel like we've disappointed God or someone has hurt us or someone has disappointed us. And so we empower that stronghold with our unbelieving belief system. And we refuse, like the people of Israel, to dislodge the sin in our lives. Oh, it's just a little thing. Don't worry about it. But they eventually come and enslave you. But the Lord is faithful. He hears their cries. He has compassion upon the people. He lets them come to the end of of themselves And then provides a judge who will lead them and bring them to freedom. When you read the story of the judges, you see in them, in the scripture, you'll see phrases like, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon this judge, and they performed either a supernatural act or had some sort of insight or wisdom or strength or boldness. And this judge who comes to the people of Israel, is not there to 
enslave them, but rather to bring them out of enslavement, to bring them freedom, not condemnation. And freedom, like blessing, is the result of obedience. And so the judge calls the people back to obedience. He calls them to tie themselves again to the Lord like a kite. And you read at the end of each judge that there was peace in the land. And there was peace in the land for 40 years, beginning of the next chapter. And the people of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they're back into the cycle again. I know none of you are like that. But I see it in my own life. This cycle of disobedience, defeat, and deliverance. And then I forget. Most of you don't even remember what you had for lunch yesterday. And this is why it's important to remember the great things of God. And in fact, in the Pentateuch, in the beginning of the Scripture, the Lord commands the people of Israel to create a book of remembrance so that all generations would remember what God had done. The greatness of our God. This is perhaps the greatest definition of why we need children's and youth ministry is so that the greatness of our God is not forgotten by the next generation. And God's judgment is certain and the people forget to remind their children that God's judgment is certain. And I'm telling you, Christian, God's judgment is certain. I'm telling you those this morning who don't follow Christ that judgment is certain. But the great great thing is is that grace is certain to those who believe and will accept it. And that's the greatness of our God, that he gives us what we don't deserve. Somebody agree with me this morning. All right. I'm a little Pentecostal. I just need a little bit of encouragement every now and again. (laughs) Facebook works, but not while I preach. And our judge, listen to me, our judge is the Holy Spirit. We will be judged, and in fact, if you listen to the Holy Spirit, He brings judgment upon the sin in your life, and we call it conviction. He comes in and He says, hey, the way you just talked to your wife, not acceptable. That's not the way Christ acts or looks. God is, He's pretty determined to help us look like Jesus. And when we don't, He's going to bring conviction he's going to tug on the kite string and say hey correct the chorus just a little bit and when we respond in obedience and in repentance we can get back on chorus through the power of jesus christ and i look at these stories in judges have you read the book of judges because that's your homework if you haven't you need to read like ehud the judge he comes to the enemy king and they, they say he's left-handed, like it makes him unique and special. How many left-handed people we got in the room today? All right, yeah, you're unique and special. But really, in context, it, it kind of is basically saying that Ehud actually has a disability. He couldn't use his right hand. I love how God uses the unexpected. He surprises you. And Ehud makes his own sword. That's like the coolest thing you could ever do as a man. Make your own weapon. I mean, if you could build your own gun, how cool would that be? Right? I, that's what I'm saying. Amen. So he straps the sword to his, his opposite thigh. He goes a, as a messenger to deliver this message to this king. They say is a fat king. It literally is in Scripture. And it says, 
that while he's giving the message, the guards had left, he whips out his sword like an assassin ninja, and he jabs the, and into the king and says, the king is so fat that the rolls of skin envelop the sword and it disappears and Ehud gets away. The Bible is cool. <laughs> it is not boring. You read those stories. You're boring. Read the Bible. It's got cool stuff in there. Ninja assassin. Tell your kids. You read about Samson. He's a Nazarite superhero. And he goes about slaying the enemy. Really, he's more self-centered than any of the other judges. And yet God uses him in one mighty final act like an Avenger. That's a superhero, a group of superheroes. But he, he brings justice to the people against the Philistines. Band, I want you to come. The one story that I love is Gideon. I guess I see myself as Gideon. Gideon is like the kid at the end of the bench, right? Can we just say that God is the worst chooser ever, right? Like when it comes to the draft, he looks at the bottom of the chart and goes, that kid, what? That's your first round draft pick is Gideon? When you read chapter six, you see Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. He's hiding out. And the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, mighty warrior. (laughs) Yeah, Uh uh-huh. He's hiding. He's a punk. He won't go out and fight. He does want to provide for his family, so I get that. But I love what God does. In his grace, he sees us as we could be, as he created us to be. Through his power, Gideon would become a great warrior. Not because Gideon was a great warrior, but because through God, Gideon could be that guy. I'm telling you, inside of you is a belief system that's really more about unbelief. Gideon didn't believe it about himself. The angel of the Lord says, mighty warrior, and he says, uh, yeah, I, I think you got the wrong address. Have, have you seen me? My, like my tribe is the least and my clan is the least and I'm like the runt of the litter. And the angel says, ain't no thing. The Lord says, I got you on this. You go in my strength and my power and no one can defeat you. Gideon throws up his excuses. Where where were you long ago when we were enslaved? I love how God answers him. (laughs) He doesn't. God will not entertain your deceptive accusations about who he is and what his character is like. It's the strongholds that we've set up, the belief systems that lead us to believe that God is other than what Scripture tells us he is like. So when Gideon questions God, God doesn't feel the need to defend himself. He simply says, Gideon, I got a job for you, and I'll take care of you. And Gideon tests him, and the Lord comes through. But that's simply because of the stronghold in Gideon's life. He still didn't believe that God was really who he said he was. And what about you this morning? What does God say about you? And what are the strongholds in your life? Is Christ alone? Or is there some area of your life that's sort of off limits to God? Uh, God, don't touch that area. That's for me. We'll deal with that later. And God's saying, no, no, no. Now's the time. There's conviction in this room this morning 
not because of my preaching, but because of the word of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And when you respond in repentance and obedience, realize that Israel didn't really repent. They simply said, we're desperate. And had they repented, repentance means turning 180 degrees and going the opposite direction. Do we really repent when convicted, or do we simply say, God, get me out of the jam that I'm in? I know what my tendency is. What about you? I love the illustration of Gideon because God plus any person equals a majority. Read the story of Gideon. See how it turns out. It's true what Romans 8.1 says, you are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. That word conquerors, it sort of clues you in that there's a battle. And Israel didn't want to fight it. They got tired of it. What about you? Would you stand with me this morning? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be more than conquerors. Not because you can do it, but because God can do it through you. He can empower you. He can give you boldness. He can give you all that you need. When you put Jesus Christ in his place, when you read through the book of Judges this week, notice the character. These aren't perfect people. And I'm so thankful that only Christ is perfect and that all the other characters in the Bible They sort of look like me. (laughs) They have imperfections. They don't always do it the right way. But you take those 12 judges and you take the great qualities about them and you know what it points to? The perfect character of Jesus Christ, the ultimate perfect judge, savior, deliverer, mighty warrior. I mean, this is the picture that Judges is trying to set up for us that no human could possibly do all of that. But Jesus Christ is the perfect judge, deliverer, savior, rescuer, mighty warrior. I love that to get you excited because if you've never committed your life to Christ, be certain there is a judgment day. But that day could be today. You could say, Jesus, judge me, convict me, and bring me into relationship through your grace. There is therefore now no condemnation, the Bible says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are set free from the law of sin and death. That's a great and glorious promise. And church, what about you? What strongholds do you need to eliminate and destroy and get rid of in your life? Where do you need to walk in repentance and obedience this week? What does that look like for you? Would you allow me to pray with you as we leave this place? If you've never committed your life to Christ, this is your holy moment. To say, Jesus, come in and by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring me into relationship with God the Father. And for those of you who are struggling and suffering under strongholds, The Lord is here, and His grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, Scripture says, His strength is made perfect. Amen. Father, we are your people today. For those who are far from you today, who've never taken that step, we raise our hand to you and say, count us in. 
Jesus, come in to my life. Make your home in my heart and eliminate every other idol, every other God, every stronghold that sets itself up against you. And Father, for those who today, even by the conviction of your Holy Spirit, are recognizing their believing unbelief system, that while they believe you to be real and to be powerful in some way, have somehow set up a mindset of doubt and disbelief that dethrones you, that refuses to acknowledge your purpose and plan and power in their life. And this morning, by the power and the name of Jesus and his shed blood, we break every stronghold, every mindset, every thought that sets itself up against the name of Jesus Christ. Church, if that's you this morning, would you just simply lift your hand to Jesus? Jesus, I need you to break those strongholds. I cannot do it of my own accord. But by your power, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, bring the baptism of your Holy Spirit to give us boldness and supernatural power beyond just simple belief, but to step into a a, a new reality of the spiritual. It's in the mighty name of Jesus I ask this. Amen. Amen, church. Thank you.